Janet raised up from under my hood and he shook his head and said, This ain't good. Timing belts done shrunk one size too small. Those spark plug wires are a little too long and your main frog spawner's nearly gone. Your injector ports are stripped and that ain't all. Your torque converter's running low on torque and that water pump's nearly down a quart. We caught it all in time, so you're in luck. He said, I've got the time and I've got the parts. Just give me the word and I'm ready to start. I think we can bring her in for 800 bucks. And welcome to Car Time Radio. Dan Watson sitting in tonight for Jay Zimbauer. I've been here so often that I don't think I have to introduce myself if you listen to the show very often. Uh, but I am a certified lubrication specialist from the STLE and... Uh, We'll talk about oil, lubes, whether that's motor oil, transmission fluid, gear oils, boat oil, lawnmower oil, tractor oil, uh, any of those lubrication requirements. Also, if you have a question on uh, antifreeze or on fuel, gasoline or diesel, those kind of things, we can talk about those too. And filtration, I've done that here before too. So a number of things, and uh, as always, uh, your calls would make the show, and you can call us in here at 407-674-1025 or toll-free 855-545-1025, and uh, we'll look for your questions. Now, a couple weeks ago when I was in here, I was kind of on a rant and a raving and talking about some of the things to do with energy and this, that, and the other, and I made just a short uh, statement on global warming, and good gracious, I got some... Uh, I got some pushback on that, and I just wanted to just uh, touch on that for just a moment, just to defend myself. And I think some people missed what I was saying, is that I'm not denying that the planet may be warming. Good gracious, it's done that in its five-billion-year history. It's warmed up, cooled down, had ice ages, had glaciers, had warm ferns growing in Antarctica. It's just done it all. So it's a dynamic climate. It changes. The issue is whether or not we can actually call that man-made global warming. Don't let that confuse you when you hear this issue being bantied around on the talking heads on TV and so forth. There is a significant difference between accepting that the climate is dynamic and changes and looking at what's happening and saying that it's somehow due entirely to the operation of man. And what uh, actually brings us up a little bit for me today is the fact that the reports that there could be planet warming, we'll call it, for Mars, and that there was uh, noted liquid water. If you saw that, that's an exciting thing to see, regardless of anything about the warming or not, but the fact that they think they saw liquid water running, but that's a result of having some higher temperatures than normal on Mars. Now, I don't want to sound too sarcastic here, but should we attribute the warming on Mars to the fact that we showed up and that the human race has now got a rover moving around on Mars? So that's kind of like our cars here driving around, right? And are we saying that our presence on Mars has now created man-made warming on Mars? Um Seems highly unlikely, right? Unless we just own something and haven't discovered the civilization of lost people living on Mars, and they're now creating the global warming on Mars. But 
highly unlikely, okay, unless they're living well underground. So what does it come down to? What's common between the planet Earth and the planet Mars that might have some relationship to the temperature on these two planets? For goodness sakes, folks, it's the sun. You know, that is the source of the energy which creates the temperature. It's not something that just comes out of nowhere. The big ball of fire in the sky does, in fact, create the temperatures that we feel here on planet Earth and even on planet Mars. And for many, many centuries, not being able to measure it, most observers and scientists assume the sun was a constant temperature. They just gave it a constant. The truth is, now we've put four wonderful solar observatory satellites in space. They've been uh, ringed out there where they can really monitor and take a look at the sun. Turns out the good old sun up there can change plus or minus 5% in its energy output. So, I saw a solar physicist once describe our conditions on Earth, and he was kind of a a really sharp guy, and he said that uh, just assume the sun's a big space heater. Turns the, you turn the space heater up, gets warmer on the planet. You turn the space heater down, gets cooler on the planet. Not a real complex theory of operation, right? Makes sense to most people. So all I'm saying is that do not be confused with all the talk. Make sure you always differentiate between man-made global warming and actual climate change and the dynamic dynamic climate that we have which is proven over the history of the planet i mean my god that would be be, you'd be a nimrod to not accept the fact that the planet has changed in temperature we're in an interglacial period now prior to this i had ice all over europe and the northern hemisphere huge chunks of ice everywhere do you know how long it's been since a ship going across the ocean could hit an iceberg where the titanic hit an iceberg it's been since about uh, about 100 years There's no icebergs out there. They all melted, and there isn't any to come down that far. So obviously things have been warming up since that period of time, but it's been warming up now for going on about, uh, well, close to 20,000 years since the last ice age. It's been warming up. So that's obviously not a man-made event. So I wanted to clear that up and remind you that in the 1970s, My producer and I are old enough to remember the 1970s. The big headlines in the paper was global freeze coming. Now, these are the same group of scientists that modeled the climate and determined that we were all going to freeze, and they were certain of that. And then later, I guess, when the grants ran out and they needed some more money on something different, now it was that we're we're going to burn up. So um, keep perspective. Think these things out. And as my dad said years ago, in many cases, for goodness sakes, just see if you can find a money trail, and you might find the motivation for why a lot of these things get such such heavy legs and they carry so far is because somewhere, somehow, somebody's figured out how to make money off of the project. And, and I, I don't say that with any really venom. I just say it that it seems to always be true. Look around. I I know that it's a hard thing to admit, but... Al Gore's a multimillionaire and a 
whole lot of it's got to do with the, the global warming um, company and, 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 and things that he set up. And God bless him, have all the money he needs. But, uh, gosh, it sure seems convenient to be the, you know, the the crier, the town crier for global warming and then make a fortune off of it. So, anyway, that's the global warming. Thank all of you who uh, commented to me and sent me something about that. Uh, I always enjoy those things, and that's where I stand on it. So I'll look for some more <laughs> comments. You can send me a comment through my webpage, which is thelubepage.com, and uh, tell me just how uh, off base I am. Uh, try to keep it clean. I, I try to keep things clean. You know, I don't want to question my manhood or my origin on the planet. Okay, that, those kind of things. Now we're gonna uh, we're headed right up against our first break we'll go ahead and take our break and then when we come back I'm gonna get back to some good old oil okay talk about oil so we'll be back right after these messages the mechanic raised up from under my hood and he shook his head and said this ain't good the timing belts done shrunk one size two And welcome back to Car Time Radio. Ken Watson in here tonight for Jay Zimbauer. And uh, as promised, we're going to get down to some regular oil talk now, get away from the global warming, and get into some good old-fashioned lubrication. You know, I've, I've been on here a number of times, and it seems like it may get old, but I just see it so much. And I want to make sure that anybody listening understands that... Uh, it's not a good, pretty thing going on a lot in the oil industry right now. Uh, there are some charlatans out in the business making some substandard oils and selling them, and they're running into trouble, some of these guys, and getting uh, fined in some states, thrown out of some states. Um, it's just uh, unfortunate that they try to make this stuff and get away with it, but they do it and get away with it for a period of time because not every state is really, really Johnny on the spot of uh, sampling and determining the quality of products on the shelf. And I would say to uh, the state of Florida, please uh, crack down, get get tougher on it, okay? Because if you go, let me give you an example. You're just a consumer and you go into any place, XYZ Quick Lube. Okay, or a shop or a tire store. And you say, Yeah, I saw your sign at the road. I want that oil change for, you know, twelve ninety nine or whatever ridiculous price it's been set down low. And uh sure enough, you can get that. And you get this oil change and you leave and you're on your way and you're happy. Got my oil change, car's in good shape, didn't have to pay much for it, I did good, okay? And what you don't know is that in the bulk tank that they drained the oil out of, that they got out of the truck that had very few markings on it, they got this oil in and that it is basically not qualified to go in any level of modern car made by man. And so if you do this, how much damage can this really do? I mean, is it really that big a deal? Car's running, going down the road. I'm getting from point A to Point B, and it's doing pretty good. And the truth is you probably won't know the difference, but here's what happens. When that substandard oil runs in your engine, the amount of wear that takes place during the three or 4,000 miles that you run it can quite possibly 
reduce the long-term life of that engine by 10%. So if that engine was good for 300,000 miles, you might have just taken 30,000 miles off of it by running that rot gut stuff in the car. And goodness, you, you saved five or six bucks. I mean, five or six bucks, only 30,000 miles off the life? Wow, that must be pretty cheap as long as you get rid of the car, right? Now, how would you know the life of the car was shortened, okay? The number one place that's going to show up from using substandard oil is loss of compression. Because what happens is this oil has a hard time maintaining that cylinder ring seal interface and providing the lubrication that it needs to provide. So what happens is it just keeps wearing the ring. See, when the old idea we had with vehicles when we said, well, break it in, right, that's really seating the rings. The rings wear intentionally rather than wearing down the cylinder wall in order to match the cylinder wall and give you a good seal. But if the oil that's in your vehicle is no better than the break-in oils that are sold to get maximum wear on the rings to get that seat, then they'll go right on past where they were supposed to go and just keep wearing the ring. And then pretty soon, the ring's not making the seal that it should, and compression is leaking past the ring seal. Do you notice it? Not maybe too much, except that when you notice you're using oil and also that, gosh, I don't get the original fuel economy I used to get. There was a time, man, I was getting 30 miles per gallon on the road, and now all I can get is about 27. I don't know what's happened. Well, you've lost about 10% compression. Compression is what gives you power, so you need that power to run efficiently to get the fuel economy, and you've lost it. And you know what? You can't put it back because the ring is worn. It's actually worn. I mean, it's physically like taking sandpaper and wearing it down. It's, it's worn off. So using this inferior oil, the first place it starts is on the rings. The next thing you, you don't really realize, but in a period of time, if you continue to use it, you're going to start to hear this knocking noise. It's not real bad, but you hear a little bit of it. It's a different sound in the engine. What it is is the clearance in the bearing faces has opened up because, guess what? It wore it off. See, the surfaces on those bearings are made with what they call Babbitt material. Wow, what is Babbitt? Well, Babbitt is a, it's an alloy of uh, tin and zinc uh, and antimony. And that alloy is designed to be pretty hard, but actually sacrificial rather than steel. So when the oil doesn't give a good film between the moving parts, the Babbitt wears and it'll just keep wearing, and then pretty soon it'll wear through and actually wear through the copper backing that it was electroplated with, and then next thing you know, it's starting to expose the steel in the support of the connector rod or the main bearing. Now it really starts to knock, and if it knocks enough, pretty soon you're just going to either have to get it fixed or it's going to throw a rod. So all this starts with accelerated wear from using an inferior lubricant in the engine. You can go anywhere you want to get your oil changed, but you should ask the place changing your oil to show you the spec sheet on the oil they're putting in or show you the bottle that it's coming out of. 
Now, when they get drums of oil or bulk, they can get a spec sheet. They can show you on the spec sheet, this is what it is, right? Well, quite frankly, if it's one that you recognize anyway, like Valvoline or Castor Oil or Havoline or one of those, you don't have anything to worry about. The problem is, like I'm talking about these guys that are selling this inferior stuff around the, the nation, all over the place, and what happens is is that stuff usually comes in fairly undiscernible, unmarked uh, bulk containers with very little information. If it has anything, it says uses the term a lot, suitable, meaning, well, I didn't say it met the spec. I just said it was suitable. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. It has no legal bearing. Now, knowing that the least you can do is look in your owner's manual, know what's called for for the oil, and then ask the people that are going to do the service, could you show me the technical data on your oil? I just want to make sure that you're using the current classification of oil. That could be SN uh, for your car. And make sure that it's the right stuff and that in almost every case it's important to use the weight of oil or viscosity that your manufacturer recommended. They built the doggone engine. They must have some idea what they want to put in it, okay? And all of us, as smart as we think we are, we may not be smart enough to override everything that the manufacturer specified just because we think it would do better. Um, for example, for years I've always had this this battle going on with a lot of customers. They tell me, look, hey, my pickup truck's got a pretty good size V8 in it, and it works really hard, and I'm going to run 2050 in it because it gets hot and it works hard and it needs, it needs thicker oil, right? That is really... Most, in many cases, if it's a new engine, that's a good road to wear it out faster than if you put the right oil in it. They go, well, what do you mean by that? How can it possibly do that? The thicker the oil, I'm going to get better protection. Again, without getting into automotive technology too deeply, bearings have tiny little holes we call bearing galleries that allow the oil to flow into the bearing. Now, the manufacturer that made the vehicle says, well, that hole has to be a certain size because I've called for a 20-weight oil or I've called for a 30-weight oil. And so that oil will flow readily in through that hole. Well, wait a minute. You went and put a 50-weight oil in. How well is that going to flow in? Well, not very well at all. In fact, a lot of times it has to heat up and thin down to get through the hole. So the bearing runs 50, 60 degrees hotter than normal in order to get the oil to thin down so it'll go through the hole. Wow. You can see that where that's going. It's just counterproductive. There's no way. What you want in those bearings is max oil flow going through them. You go, well... How does that give it better protection? Well, when the oil flows through quickly, it removes the heat. The oil removes the heat in the bearing that's being generated. And if you remove the heat, then the oil can stay at its proper viscosity and give you good lubrication. But if the bearing gets too hot, starts to thin out oil, and then you start to have dry spots, then again, that Babbitt material we're talking about starts to rub away, and then you got trouble. So you need to pay attention to what goes in, and you're the only one that will do it. It's almost like when you take care of yourself and your health. Uh, you're just a, one of the, the cattle passing through the doctor's office. they got lots to see and lots to do, and they do it, and they do a great job. But you're the one that has to look at everything and make sure that something wasn't accidentally prescribed for you that's the wrong stuff. You have to pay attention to what's being given to you, what you're supposed to use for yourself. Well, it's the same thing with your car. 
you actually have to say, hey, guys, I, I – and then one of the ways that it's easier is to develop a good relationship with a shop. It's like if you go to Jay Zimbauer's shop, let me tell you, they're going to put the right stuff in your car. Why? Because they're all ASE certified, highly efficient mechanics, and their job is not changing oil. It's really repairing and fixing cars. So uh, to them, they're familiar with all the ins and outs of how to do it. And so when you have a relationship with a shop, you can trust them to put the right stuff in. But when you're just driving down the road looking for the best, cheapest uh, oil change sign on the road, and I'll get my oil change there, you really better pay attention to what's going on. And listen, it's not always that it is the intent of a place to not give you a good oil change. A lot of times they don't know that they got substandard stuff for the oil. Somebody sold it to them as the best deal. And so they thought they got good oil and they put it in your car. The problem is is that there's too much junk floating around and it's not being caught before it does a lot of damage. So we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about uh, some ways that you can try to protect yourself and the ways that you can quickly learn about uh, what kind of oil goes in your vehicle. So we'll be back right after these messages. And welcome back to Car Time Radio. Dan Watson sitting in tonight for Jay Zimbauer. Numbers here, 407-674-1025 or 855-545-1025. And we're going to go right to the phones and talk to Drew. Hello, Drew. What can hey, I do for hey, you? how's it going? Good. Hey, um, I've got a 91 Mastercraft boat, um, and it's powered by a... Um, 351 Ford Windsor. Um, and as far as changing the oil on that, I looked in the manual, and all it says is SAE 30. Um, so I didn't know what she might recommend for a motor that old and whatnot. Well, uh, offhand, without knowing how many hours and things are on it, uh, I'd feel a little bit better in a boat maybe of using the 1040, okay, than the 30. Okay. Uh, 30 uh, certainly would be fine. It may have some age on it. It may have a little bit of uh, wear and use, and a uh, 10W40 would be a better oil. Now, it is a boat, and believe it or not, you really should run a marine-grade oil for this boat, not just go down and pick up a 10W40. I know everybody says, yeah, but it's a 351 Windsor. It's the same engine that I used to have in my old uh, 150 Ford van. Yeah. But it's not the same engine. See, when they take these engines and they put them in a boat, all of them, whether it's a GM or a Ford engine, they marinize the engine. Well, what the heck does that mean? What it means is they change out the valve train in the boat, and they put in a marine-style valve train. And the difference is you can take that 351 in that boat, you can go out, crank it up to 4,500 RPM, and leave it there and run it for the next 30 minutes. That's not what you do with a vehicle that your car doesn't run real well at 4,500 RPM for a constant yeah. running. So they, what they do is they change the geometry of the cam lobes so that the engine is designed to run at a constant high RPM. Okay. Now, okay. once they do that uh, and you're going to run at this high RPM, 
you need oil that has a characteristic in the industry. We call it high temperature, high shear, meaning that it's designed to provide protection under constant high RPM conditions. Okay, so the marine grade oil that we we sell from Amsoil, or if you can, you could buy it from uh, a Mercury Marine oil or uh, even a Volvo Penta Marine oil. These oils are set up with a more robust additive package that's designed to handle constant high RPM. And if they're a good quality marine grade oil, they also have an actual chemical rust inhibitor that's put into the oil so that uh, when you go out and run this thing and all that close to the water and all the high humidity and mist, and then you go and park the boat, you don't have to worry about it uh, suffering from rust and corrosion because it's got this marine-grade oil that will give it a good coat of rust inhibitor on the inside. So you see what I'm saying is that um, to treat these things right, they need to have uh, a legitimate marine-grade, either a 30. uh, You might find a Volvo Penta has some 30-weight oil that would be fine. But I think at the age, 1990, I would... I would rather see a 40-weight oil in it. I think it would give you a little better uh, protection. And the reason okay, also... You, go ahead. Would you recommend a synthetic in that? Well, uh, if you were going to put a synthetic in it, which I would recommend for any boat because of the high RPM conditions, synthetics are well-suited for that application. But what I would do is make sure that you flush this engine before you went to a full synthetic engine oil, Okay. Okay. Now, if you uh, you want to contact me during the week, I can tell you a couple ways to do that. I own a boat myself, okay? But, um, yeah, so if you want to get in touch with me during the week, at my number for my office is 407-657-1111. Okay. I can kind of talk you through it and tell you a couple things to do to make sure that it turns out well. And right. uh, I appreciate that. And have you owned this boat for a long time? No, I've only had it. Um, I bought it this summer, so I've only got about sixty hours on it. Okay. Well, one of the things I'll tell you in boats that is the tip of the week for boats. Okay. Uh, take care of that outdrive. That outdrive is. Yeah. You cannot believe how expensive they are. A new outdrive yeah. is on your boat. Run about eight thousand dollars. Okay. A good rebuilt one would be about four thousand. And. The life of that outdrive is you change that outdrive oil. There's only maybe a quart in there or less, okay? And you can do it yourself if you learn how to do it. But you need to change that outdrive oil and run a high-quality uh, performance oil. Amsoil has a great outdrive oil gear lube, but that's the life of that outdrive. And my good friend in Longwood at uh, Boat Ranch, they rebuild outdrives all the time cannot believe uh-huh. the condition of those outdrives sometimes that come in and haven't been serviced in two or three years and it'll finally get bad enough that uh, it, it just the inside is just completely ruined and uh, they're very expensive so just remember that that's tip of the week take care of your outdrive on a boat because yeah. it can cost you a ton of money and it and what happens is you can be running down the river going somewhere you don't even know it you pick up some monofilament line and that line gets wrapped in there, and it cuts the seal. And the next thing you know, you've got water intrusion into the gear set. 
you never even know it. And sometimes uh, once you park and, and don't realize it, it'll leak some of the oil out, and then pretty soon you're running almost all water in there, and it's not long until it's gone. Mm. So yeah. that's an expensive thing, and it's very easy to avoid it, but you need to pay attention to that thing once a year. All right. I appreciate it. All right. Well, give me a call in the week, and we'll talk about how to do the, the flush and change the boat over to a good marine synthetic engine oil. Will do. Thank you very much. All right. Great call. Thank you for that call. And see, folks, again, I always hate to say this. Oil and are not complicated, but there are some technical parts that are not intuitively obvious, okay? And when you're talking about uh, a marine application, and you say, well, if you got regular oil, doesn't it coat everything and stop corrosion? No, wrong. We will not win Jeopardy, okay? Think about this for a minute. Does oil float on water? The answer is yes, it does. So if I have oil on the metal surface inside the engine, and that engine breathes through its breather, the air comes in and out each in the day as you heat up and cool down. And guess what? In Florida, we have tons of humidity in that air, right? So when you have condensation on your windshield of your car, you have condensation on the inside of the engine. That condensation will form and lift the oil off the surface because oil floats on water, not the other way around. Now, if I have a an oil that has a design chemical For rust prevention, the chemical is chemically attracted to the surface of the metal. The water cannot lift it when it forms the condensation bubble, so it runs off like water running off of wax. You've seen that. It beads up and runs off. So the metal surface is protected. The water beads up and drips down into the crankcase pan and doesn't lift the oil off the surface. Now, if it lifts the oil off the surface and then runs down the surface and takes more oil off, then the surface of the metal is exposed to the oxygen in the air. And, folks, that oxygen, I'm glad it's here because we breathe it. But other than that, it can oxidize, which is rusting or corroding, anything that it touches, especially anything that's ferrite metal, iron-based metal. So it just starts rusting. And so in boats who are around much more water moisture right on the surface of of the water, um, they need that extra rust inhibitor. And if you've got an old classic car that you love it and you don't drive it much, you should consider finding an equivalent marine-grade oil to run in that car because the only big difference will be is that it's overkill, but it's got rust inhibitors in it and your old classic car sitting around trying to rust on you inside the engine and you don't even know it. So that's a tip again, how to protect your classic car. Use something that is a marine grade oil with a rust inhibitor that's in the oil and it will protect the inside of that engine. See, there's so many different things that, uh, you know, that old old commercial they had where the guy said, Earl is Earl, you know, well, maybe... The, the Earl of Dumdum is what they're talking about because oil is not just oil. Oil is very specialized, and uh, if you get the right stuff, it'll it'll treat you really well. Get the wrong stuff, you can cause some damage. All right, well, we're up against 
the break. Give you these numbers again, 407-674-1025 or 855-545-1025. And we'll be back right after these messages. And welcome back to Car Time Radio. Dan Watson sitting in for Jay Zimbauer. Uh, listening to uh, Rhonda talking about is your steering wheel pulling to one side. And sometimes I get up and feel like that life is pulling to one side. And I can't seem to get on a straight path. So I don't know. You know, these things get more chronic the older you get. So anyway, now we were talking about uh, oil and the gentleman called about the the boat oil is a good question, and uh, I got to tell you, almost any kind of product you have, whether it's a boat, an ATV, a motorcycle, uh, a diesel pickup truck, gasoline truck, gasoline car, any of these things, today these vehicles are technologically um pushed to the limit and what has happened is is that we then end up having to tailor the lubricating products because the technology is being driven to such a level to get the maximum performance and the maximum fuel efficiency and all these things that we put into it and so you just can't go by the old philosophy that well one oil fits all it doesn't and you have to use the proper product for that equipment, whatever you have. I'll give you an example. Lawnmowers. My God, one of the most mistreated things on earth is a lawnmower. People will put anything in it, run it for the whole time, run it out of oil, and then kick it when it won't work. Okay? Now, if you actually were to read the owner's manual and look at the little maintenance requirements and once a year did the maintenance to your lawnmower, you might sell it at a yard sale because you got tired of it, but it might still be going. But people don't pay any attention to them. Um, There's an oil that um, Amsoil came out with years ago called small engine oil. You go, well, why in the world would you need an oil different for a small engine than a big engine? I mean, can I use the big engine oil in the small engine? And absolutely, the truth is you can but you could tailor an oil made for these small engines a little different than that big engine oil because so many small engines are what they call splash lubricated. They don't have an oil pump. They don't have a filter. They don't have anywhere for that oil to pump through and, and flow into places. What they have is on the bottom of the connector rod on that one-cylinder little engine is a a cup device which picks up oil and throws it like the devil up into the bottom of the piston to lubricate the piston and the the sides of the cylinder. It's called splash lubrication. Well, splash lubrication works fine, but there's a couple problems you run into. It's like having an egg beater sitting in a in a in a bowl of oil. It's just beating the devil out of that oil. And so if I'm going to do that to the oil, I think, well gosh, what What's the detrimental effect of that? It's called entraining air, foaming up the oil. And air, oil full of foam and air, you know, it just doesn't lubricate very well, okay? But we get by with it, and besides, the 
the way we handle mowers is two or three years from now, when the mower's worn out, we throw it away and get another one, okay? But what if you could make an oil that was specially designed to handle that beating, foaming action? Well, that'd be a pretty good idea because what it would mean is I might get really good lubrication the whole time. And then the little engine wouldn't just wear out, die on me, okay? So along comes an oil from Amsoil called small engine oil, designed specifically to handle more of the whipping and beating action of splash lubrication, okay? Uh, you can do it. It's just like I said for that marine oil, that we make it so that it can handle constant high RPM. And people don't think about that. They buy regular oil because it's cheaper than marine oil, and they put it in there. And then somewhere down the road, that, that wonderful high-tech marine engine's not running real well because the cam lobes are nearly worn off on it, and we're wondering why it's not running as well. Well, because you didn't pay attention to what the manufacturer told you to use. Okay, so my point is, is that we, the owners, the people that have these kinds of things, whether they're motorcycles, scooters, lawnmowers, lawn tractors, a big tractor out, we live on the farm, diesel pickup, maybe I got myself a really good RV. Think about this, about an RV. I take this super heavy, big chassis, and put about as much wind resistance on this thing as you could. It might as well be a sailboat going down the road. And then I put sometimes a 6-liter gasoline engine in it or even one of these big 10-cylinder Ford engines, these kind of things, gasoline engine, okay? Now, will it go down the road? You betcha. Will it do it? But it's operating so close to its upper limit of capability that you better give it some extra protection because it's not like it's running in the sweet spot. I mean, it is straining to get this big bubba up the next hill, okay? Almost all of those big RVs should all be diesel simply for the fact that the diesel has the lugging power. That's why they use big diesels in big trucks. You don't see an over-the-road 18-wheeler running down the road with a 10-cylinder gasoline engine in it. Because it wouldn't last any time. They wouldn't do that. The fleet managers say, my God, man, that thing will be worn out in 100,000 miles. They drive big diesel trucks for a million miles. And if they don't get a million miles out of it, they don't think they got their money's worth out of it. So that's the difference. So tip of the week again, when you go looking for an RV, don't buy a gas-powered RV. You know, it seems like it's easier, they're simpler and so forth. But if you're really going to drive that thing and you're going to crisscross the country and do some real running with it, Better get yourself a good turbocharged diesel that has the power and the life to do what you want to do. Uh, the gasoline engine might save you some on initial cost and seeming some on some of the maintenance, but it, it'll be gone. It'll wear it out. Just wear it out. So, All right, so we've been through a number of things, and I want to tell you to check out my website, thelubepage.com. I also have another website called lubedepot.com, either one of those, and Ask me questions and uh, contact me when you got questions on oil. If you really don't know, ask somebody that does. I'll be glad to help you out with getting the right stuff for your car, your boat, whatever you've got. You can get to that website. Again, it's thelubepage.com, or I have another one called lubedepot.com, either one of those. And I'll be glad to answer your questions you put in there and uh, help you out. So Jay Zimbauer is going to be back next week. He's in town. He's going to be here. He's going to be answering those automotive questions. So tune in next week to Jay, and I'll see you in a few weeks on the radio.
No spark plug wires are a little too long, and your main prod responder's nearly gone. Your injector ports are stripped, and that ain't all. 